morning. We light this candle as a sign of love shown in the coming light of Christ. During the season of Advent, we are waiting for the Christ child, God's great sign of love for the world, and we are waiting until the day that Christ shall come again. We remember the promises of the prophet Isaiah, that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom, like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. In the midst of all this busyness that calls our attention in other directions, we remember the prophecy, the Lord will give a sign. Look, says the prophet, the young woman is with a child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. Eternal, eternal God, creator of all light and life, we give you thanks for the love shown in the coming of the Christ, the light that shines in the darkness, the life of all people. Amen.
The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. God upholds the orphan and the widow, but the way of the wicked God brings to ruin. Holy God, in whom we live, and move and have our being. We know that we are restless until we find our rest in you. In this hour, open our hearts to praise you and thank you for your generous mercies to us. Gracious source of our being, we praise you and thank you for even the breath of life you have given us. Fill our hearts with your presence, that our mouths may proclaim your praise. You may be seated. Grace and peace to you this Lord's Day, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered here in the sanctuary and also those of us worshiping in other locations. We are indeed glad and grateful to gather in the house of the Lord. Because it is God's house in which we have gathered, the word of welcome is one made in Jesus Christ, and a word of welcome extended in Jesus Christ is a word of welcome with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. This is Christ's house, and so all are welcome here. We are glad and grateful for you to be with us. Ordinarily, at this point in the service, I would invite you to a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this, of this service, but out of an abundance of caution, we are going to press the pause button on congregational fellowship until we know a little bit more about Omicron and how it affects us. So we will not go to fellowship afterwards. afterwards. You're, of course, welcome to have conversations where we are, but we just didn't think it would be judicious to have something that involved people bringing their masks down and back up again uh, in fellowship hours. So hopefully we will know more about Omicron soon and be able to resume fellowship hour, but until then, we'll put a brief pause on that. Let me highlight a few things from the announcements portion of the bulletin for your particular attention. Actually, I just want to highlight all of them, so I'll go through them very quickly. This evening is a service of choral evensong at four o'clock back here in the sanctuary, uh, led by our choir. I look forward to seeing you here. We have an ongoing adult education series led by the Reverend Barbara Chapel that you do need to sign up for to attend. You'll see details about that in the bulletin. And our young adults, our TNT group, have a giving tree, which is located in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right and down a short ramp, where if you wish to support a family in need of a little extra holiday love, please feel free to take an ornament from the giving tree. There are instructions, and you can bring it right back here. And there's also an option for a virtual giving tree. You may order something and have it sent that we will then make sure is taken care of for those who are intended to receive it. And finally, in the very near future, we'll be scheduling a new members class. I've heard from a number of you. We will be seeking to find a time that suits the most people. So whether you have worshipped with us a long time or a short time, if you believe God is calling you to be part of our ministry here at First Church, I'd love to hear from you so that I can include you in the planning for that. With all of these things noted, let us continue to worship God with the confession of sin. The proof of God's amazing love is this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us, Christ rose for us, and Christ reigns in power for us. Christ even prays for us. 
With such assurance, we need not fear confession, but simply draw to our Maker in candor, first together and then in silence. Eternal God, with our trust in you, we not fear nothing, yet we repeatedly, rather than boldly, as your call people, we should be a light to the world, but too often we choose instead to live unto ourselves. As the recipients of the great news, we should be exuberant in our sharing, but it seems sometimes instead that we politely dismiss. We have sinned and we need your forgiveness. Cast out our faces and fill us with your spirit. And we must speak your truth one word is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ died to save sinners, brothers and sisters, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
The first lesson is taken from the book of Malachi. See, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, said the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have the the men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in the former years. The second lesson is taken from Paul's letter to the Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The Gospel reading is the Canticle of Zechariah, which is found in the first chapter of Luke's Gospel, reading at the 68th verse and continuing through the 79th. Listen for the word of God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably upon his people and redeemed them. God has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness 
and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Let me plant one of my favorite questions to afflict you this afternoon, or perhaps even deeper into the week. Why did you come to church today? Perhaps you came to listen for the Word of God, to seek Jesus Christ, and to seek redemption. That would be my answer, by the way. I hope you have your own answer to the question. But why did you come to church today? Depending on your age and stage, demographic experts have a few theories as to what drew you to church today. And for some folks worshiping on any given Sunday, it is something that is imposed upon them by their parents. Perhaps their parents who are long deceased, but also parents who had a very real, very real influence in the here and now. It reminds me of a story of a mother who went in one morning to wake her dozing daughter to get up for church. She began with a cheery, rise and shine, it's time for church. Her daughter mumbled something incoherent and buried her face back into her pillow. Fifteen minutes or so elapsed, and her mother returned. Really, it's time to get up. You will be late for church. Again, her groggy daughter, slurring her words, dove deeper under the covers. Another quarter hour passed, and her mother became increasingly strident in her demands that her daughter should roust herself from her peaceful slumber and prepare for church. And this time, her daughter replied lucidly and coherently, I don't want to go to church. I am not in the mood. To which her mother responded, You have to. You're the minister. 
Now, I've had a few moments like that in my career. Uh, To be perfectly blunt, it is often on the Sundays when I know that a prophetic word is called for because of something going on in the world. To put an even finer point on it, it is the Sundays when I know that speaking the truth of the gospel to a broken world is going to leave some folks mad because they think I've said too much and others mad because they don't think I've said enough. Prophetic words tend to get people riled up. I've heard of sermons receiving reactions ranging from excoriation of the preacher to standing ovations. One preacher got both in the same congregation. Every preacher who has been at it a while knows that roast pastor has been the fair at many a Sunday lunch, and yet it is part of the call, just as it is part of the call for you to listen actively. Listening is as important a job in the sermon as the preaching of it is. That's why the prayer includes the words, the meditations of all of our hearts. Listening to one another is so important. Listening is foundational to Christian community. When the Scots Confession was released to the congregations of the Church of Scotland in 1560, it was prefaced with these words. We are yet are wounded by the despiteful railing of such has not yet learned to speak well, and partly for stopping the mouths of impudent blasphemers who boldly damn that which they have neither heard nor yet understand. Not that we judge the cankered malice of such as able to be cured by this our simple confession. Wow, what an intro. And yet even with these hurt feelings and less than charitable assumptions of resumed conversation, the authors went on to write. If any man will note in this our confession any article or sentence repugnant to God's holy word, that it would please him of his gentleness and for Christian charity's sake to admonish us of the same in writing. And we, upon our honor and fidelity, by God's grace, do promise to him satisfaction from the mouth of God, that is, from Holy Scriptures, or else reformation of that which he shall prove to be amiss. Listening is foundational to Christian community. We must listen. We must listen deeply. And I don't think the 16th century Scots had the market cornered on rancorous discourse either. A prophetic word from God for our era might very well address deep divisions in our own country that have surfaced. I don't know if we're quite yet to impudent blasphemers and cankered malice, but there is certainly a toxicity to the quality of our discourse that needs improvement. And in this broken world, church is a place where we may listen to one another where we may gather and seek common ground in the Word of God, 
It put me in mind this last week of the writings of the Jewish theologian Martin Buber. Buber can be a little bit dense at times, so I was delighted to find a paragraph by New York Times columnist David Brooks that broke down his basic thinking in a very understandable way. Brooks writes, Buber was famous for the distinction between I-it relationships and I-thou relationships. I-it relationships come in two varieties. Some are strictly utilitarian. You're exchanging information in order to do some practical thing, like getting your taxes done. But other I-it relationships are truncated versions of what should be deep relationships. You're with a friend, colleague, spouse, or neighbor, but you're not really bringing your whole self to that encounter. You're fearful, closed, or withdrawn, objectifying her, talking at her, offering only a shallow piece of yourself, and seeing only the shallow piece of her. I-thou relationships, on the other hand, are personal, direct, dialogical. Nothing is held back. A thou relationship exists when two or more people are totally immersed in their situation, when deep calls to deep, when they are offering up themselves and embracing the other in some totally unself-conscious way, when they are involved in mutual animated describing. We all know that I-thou relationships are deeper, more satisfying, more fulfilling than I-it relationships. But I wonder if we haven't been settling a bit too much for I-it relationships. We come to church because we know that in listening to the Word of God, we will be called to something deeper. Luke's Gospel makes no secret of Jesus' message being good news for folks who wouldn't by any measure be considered privileged. Consider for a moment, if you will, the players in the drama. When Mary is told of the coming birth of her son, who is the Son of God, she takes a leaf out of Hannah's notebook, straight back from the book of Samuel, the mother of Samuel, who led the Hebrew people to prepare them for their King David. And then Mary Mary prays for the uplifting of the downtrodden. Her Magnificat, her prophetic word, is aimed at the hungry and the poor, promising them good things and declaring that the rich and the powerful will be thrown down from their thrones and sent empty away. Consider as well Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, whose canticle we heard this morning. It's a fascinating story of a prophet being dumbstruck and then suddenly finding his speech again. He prays a prayer thanking God that light has come to bring us out of darkness and guide our feet into the way of peace. Dare I say, from I-it relationships to I-thou relationships. But that's hard work. 
to move from I-it to I-thou, to come out of darkness into the way of peace. It is hard work. But we come here to do it. We come here because we know that in the goodness of God, in the redemption of God, we can see the face of Jesus even on those with whom we fervently disagree, even on those whom we might most readily relegate to the category of it. We come here that we might engage in deep and intentional listening to the Word of God and to one another. We come here to see Christ and to see him in the faces of each other. No matter how committed we are, any Christian of any depth will know that there are times when we miss that mark. When what we have most sought to do, we have failed to do. What we have most sought to see, we have failed to see. It can be so easy to miss what we are looking for. When I was a Lake Fellow immediately after graduating from seminary, I served at the Second Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis. It is a beautiful church. Uh, the sanctuary is neo-Gothic. It's modeled on Shark Cathedral. In the front, there was an original Lewis Comfort Tiffany window of the ascension of Jesus Christ. It was right front and center. You couldn't miss it unless you were committed to missing it. And every year on Easter Sunday, the choir would sing the Hallelujah Chorus. And like clockwork, the congregation would stand up and turn around and face the rear of the sanctuary where the organ gallery was. But every year, a handful would continue to face forward, looking up at the ascension window. And every year, my boss, Bill Enright, would chuckle and say to me, they do it every year. What, I replied, being new to the church. He said, well, in the old sanctuary, the Tiffany window was at the back of the room. And so on Easter Sunday, they would turn around and fix their eyes on the ascension window while the choir sang the Hallelujah Chorus. But when we moved to the new church, the congregation just kept right on turning around. The force of habit turns them right away from what they were looking for. It's the ones who were facing forward who remember what we are looking for. How easy it is to get so attached to what we think we're looking for that we miss what is right in front of us. To get so attached to our notions that we miss the possibility for dialogue. So attached to our image of someone else that we miss the image of Christ in them. Let me tell you another church story. The church I served in Charlotte, Trinity Church, uses a crucifer carrying a cross with the image of Jesus etched onto it to lead the procession into the sanctuary every week. Now, for those of you who grew up a Catholic or an Episcopalian, you probably have absolutely no issue with this whatsoever, but the cradle Presbyterians will tell you that's kind of not Presbyterian. We don't do images of Christ in our worship spaces, at least historically, although I do recognize there are thousands of churches all over the world with Jesus the Good Shepherd windows, and you can just look around this sanctuary and see them. They're all over the place. But classically, in Reformed worship architecture, we don't do images of Christ because we don't do graven images. 
So finally, I asked a liturgical historian I knew in that congregation one day how it was that this otherwise very Presbyterian church had come to have not just a processional cross, but a crucifix at that. And he answered me, well, we we used to just have acolytes, but then a young man in the congregation was killed in a drunk driving accident, and his family wanted to give the processional cross. And, you know, you just don't turn down memorial gifts if you can help it. I understand, David, I replied, but that's not just a processional cross. That's a crucifix we're talking about. That's not Presbyterian. He said, well, let me show it to you. And even though I'd seen it many times, I walked with him to the narthex of the church, and there it was, the crucifix in its stand. And I said to him, David, that's an image of Jesus right there, etched into it. And, and it was, etched right into the highly polished brass of the processional cross. Yes, it is, he said, and do you see the face? I looked closely. The figure of Jesus was hanging. His head was so bowed down that you could not see his face. I thought to myself, that's how they've gotten around it. So I said, no, there is no face. And David said, Oh, but there is. Go look closely at it. So again, I peered intently into the polished brass that I had seen a hundred times before. And then, then I saw it. My own face reflected back to me in the crucified Jesus. It is so easy to get attached, so attached our images and our expectations that we miss what is right in front of us. It's so easy to slip into I, it. But God calls us to see Jesus Christ in one another. And that, beloved, is how we will allow Christ to reign in our hearts. As Megan noted in her sermon last week, Advent stops us in our tracks of ordinary time. It is the disruption of ordinary time that we may prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ. And yes, we come here with hopes and dreams. We come here seeking good news. But I hope we also come here knowing that God is already at work for the redemption of the world. And in the working of that redemption, the tools that God is using to ply away what is tired and dead are faithful believers listening for what God is speaking and looking for the image of Christ in all of creation. These are the mechanisms by which God is bringing about the redemption of the world. And it is these very mechanisms that bring me to my final point. When we are listening to each other and to God, when we are looking for the image of Christ in one another and in ourselves, the response to God's grace is ultimately gratitude, because that can be the only healthy response to God's grace. 
Let me close with a few words for all of us from Anne Lamott. They're about the grace for a meal, but then they're about so much more, as, of course, all of our grace for meals should be. She writes, we say thank you for the miracle that we have stuck together all these years. And in spite of it all, that we have each other's backs and hilarious companionship. We say thank you for the plentiful and outrageous food, Kathy's locks, Robbie's bouche de Noel. We pray to be mindful of the needs of others. We savor these moments out of time when we are conscious of love's presence, of someone's great abiding generosity to our dear and motley family, these holy moments of gratitude. And that is grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us confirm our faith together with the ancient baptismal creed of the Church. 
What do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Remembering that all that we have and all that there is is a gift from God. Let us return to God the gifts of what we have taken from God's abundance and the prayers of our hearts with our morning offerings. Remembering whether we give our gifts online or following the service, God loves a cheerful giver.
From the abundance of this world, we have all that we need, O Lord. So we return to you this portion, asking that you would bless it and use it, that we might see your kingdom at work among us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. As we are the body of Christ, we are called to share one another's burdens and to join together in one another's joys. So let us, dear friends, unite in prayer. Eternal God, we praise you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. How great are the works of your hand, almighty God. We give you thanks that we are valuable just because you made us, just because of your image imprinted upon us. As we have come once more in your name to your house to be your people, we pray that you would claim us and make us your own. You would enter our hearts and make them your dwelling place, that you would take our lives and direct our steps, that we might be your called people. As your chosen people, as your useful people, we gather in meeting to share in the joys of discipleship. Help us to see each other and to see ourselves as you see us. Help us to see that we are your beloved creation and forgive us when we have devalued what you have called good. Hear us as we raise our voices on behalf of all that you have made. Hear us as we pray for your world. For the leaders of nations, we pray that you would send a peaceful spirit and wise counsel, that you would direct the ways of nations, that we might live productively and harmoniously with one another, that we might give a care for what you have made and preserve what you have preserved. Hear us as we pray for the world nearby, for those in our city who live in harm's way. We pray for safety for the victims of violence, particularly gun violence. We ask your abiding peace for your beloved creation, your children who live without homes. We pray our compassion and awareness. For the ailments of our community, we ask for your healing touch. Guide our ways and provoke from us responses that show that we are your forgiven, loved, and useful people, O oh God. Hear us as well as we pray for the church that you have called into being, for the Church Universal, for the Presbyterian Church, and for First Church. We pray that your Spirit will be poured out on us in surprising and new ways. Open our minds and our hearts to the work your Spirit is doing, and make us servants of your peace. Equip us to be the voice that calls us to see the divine creation everywhere we look, and indeed to live as though we have seen the image of Christ on one another. We make these in all of our prayers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray together.
in a counseling class I was taking one time, the teacher told us that dialogue breaks down for almost one reason all the time when we fail to be able to see the image of Christ in each other. And he said it's this. When people are having a discussion about things that are important, most of the time we aren't listening to the other. We are preparing our reply. But if we will listen to one another, if we will see the image of Christ in one another, the I-thou can be restored. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.